seated. If you would go with me this morning once again to the sixth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter six, and when you get there, just hold your place and also go over to Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter number five. Second Corinthians chapter number five as well. I do want to read through 2 Corinthians 5 and as an introduction to our continued study in the book of Romans. Of course, the book of Romans and the, the epistle to the Romans was not the only letter that Paul wrote uh, regarding this principle we've been learning about being baptized into Jesus Christ. And we're going to dig a little further this morning about uh, what that means and what, how that affects our actual standing before God, which we introduced uh, last uh, Lord's Day. So look with me at verse number one of 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life." Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, 
who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the word of the Lord. That final verse of 2 Corinthians 5 really is where our attention is drawn for just a few moments before we go back to Romans chapter number 6. And it's a familiar verse to us. It's a familiar verse that is often quoted. We often speak um, about the meaning of that verse. But we notice there's a very intentional wording that the Apostle Paul used under the inspiration of the Spirit to drive home a great truth that we're dealing with in Romans 6 about being baptized into Jesus Christ and even baptized into his death. It says that he hath made him to be sin for us. Not that Christ became a sinner because it says he knew no sin. He did not have the capability to even sin. But notice that it was for an intended purpose. That we, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ is made to be sin for us. Now again, Paul writing to those who are the us, those who are in Christ Jesus, those who, as we'll see this morning, have been baptized into Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we have been made righteousness, the righteousness of God in him. Now, as an introduction this morning and a preface to this, the actual righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us. It's been placed into our account, not a figurative, not an allegorical idea or concept, but actually his righteousness has been imputed or placed into us, which again is what gives us the right, the access, the privilege to be able to enter into the throne room of God and to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to enter in. So Paul, when he dealt with the church at Corinth, was describing what our standing is. Back in verse 17, he also says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, that's union. That's not a figurative union. That is an actual union with Christ Jesus. If he is, it doesn't say he might be, he is becoming. He says he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So we see that the Apostle Paul deals with these concepts, these doctrines, these principles. Our union with Christ. To be in Christ changes everything. It doesn't just change our spiritual standing. It changes everything. Temporally, our lives are changed. Spiritually, our lives are changed. Through the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, all those that are baptized into Jesus Christ enjoy not only this life, but even more importantly, the life which is to come. So what Paul is dealing with, not only in 2 Corinthians, but also in our passage in Romans 6, is this actual standing, not a figurative principle or concept. Now, if you would, go back to Romans chapter 6, and we have already journeyed through Romans 6, 1 and 2, and we looked at 
verse 3 in the first part of this, and so this will be the second week on this single verse. Paul says, Know ye not, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Paul, in this verse, proves believers are dead to sin. Why are they dead to sin? Because they have died with Christ. Now, the ordinance of baptism is given to us here as a picture of believers dying, being buried, and being risen with Christ Jesus. Paul says, know ye not. He's referring and using this expression as a means of declaring a thing that is well known by the readers and well known uh, by uh, the, the, the hearers of this. So I would say to us this morning that are in Christ Jesus, know ye not. Because these are the things which are so fully believed amongst those who know Christ. Know ye not these things to be true. That's what Paul means here. So Paul addresses those who know these things. In other words, Paul is not introducing a new concept here. But remember, when we started this study of Romans 6, there was the question that was being asked, which was the springboard to all of this, that shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because there were those who were saying, if I'm saved by grace anyway, and grace much more abounds than my sin, then can I just go on sinning and still be okay with God? And that's why Paul says, God forbid, or absolutely not, have no thought of it. That's could not be the case. And that's what lead Paul, leads Paul to say, know ye not. Well, notice the truth which he said you should understand and know. That you, know ye not, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. It is by the gift of faith that believers are made one with Christ. Real unity. Unity that makes them one with Christ. We literally become members of his body. Not in just a mystical sense, but we actually are unified with Christ Jesus. This is symbolized, or we might use the term, oneness, to be one with Christ. Now, baptism represents this unity. It represents this oneness. But then notice Paul to make sure that we understand and make sure that his hearers and readers understand. He adds this phrase that those who've been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now that baptized into his death is directly related to what we read in 2 Corinthians 5. So if you are baptized into Jesus Christ, do you know or know ye not that you have been baptized into his death? In baptism, when a person goes into the water, to, is taken down into the water, that is a picture, it is emblematic as dying with Christ. Now this ordinance then proceeds or is done on the basis that they have already died with him who bore their sins. In other words, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, the waters of baptism are not a saving ordinance. And Paul is not suggesting any such thing here. He's using baptism as an emblem or symbolically. 
Now, to be baptized into Christ is that moment of conversion. We are actually put into the body of Christ. We actually become one with him. It's not just a hypothetical situation. We actually become one with Christ. Now, he uses the word death. And of course, death is a subject that we all are a little apprehensive about. It's one of the reasons why I read Psalm 23 this morning, the Lord is my shepherd, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It has brought great comfort to so many people over the years. Um, sadly, sometimes Psalm 23 seems to bring comfort to even the non-believer, but Psalm 23 is more written for the believer, not the unbeliever. Psalm 23 is not a comfort to a person who is not in Christ Jesus. That promise is not given to them. That promise and the comfort is for those that have been baptized into Jesus Christ, those who are in the family of God. Now, praise God, that psalm has been used to open the eyes and the ears to people to lead the conversations where people have been converted and baptized and put into Christ Jesus by conversion. But primarily, death, we are all a bit apprehensive about it. When we see the word death here, we understand that Paul is writing about the two types of death. Death is twofold. We have the natural death or the temporal death. Uh, that's what Paul was writing about in 2 Corinthians 5, about this earthly tabernacle being put off. And to be absent with the, from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is an actual temporal natural death. But the Bible also says that there is an everlasting death. There is a spiritual death. Temporal death can best be described as the separation of the body and soul. That's the, the easiest way to comprehend what temporal death means. It's the separation of the body and soul. But do you realize that even temporal death is an image? It's emblematic of everlasting death or spiritual death. In other words, there is a spiritual meaning even behind the temporal death of an individual. Now, everlasting death and spiritual death, of course, there is a twofold idea here as well. Uh, those who are in Christ, death is good and death is glorious. Why? Because it is the final death unto sin, which means I will no longer have to battle sin any longer. Some people say, well, the greatest thing about death is I get to be with my Savior, and I would not disagree with you. But I would suggest to you that for the believer, the greatest truth and the greatest good and the greatest glory about temporal death is the fact you will no longer have a battle with sin. See, we don't know what that's like. We don't realize, we talk about it, we believe it. We believe in total depravity, but I don't think we fully understand what that means. We're not as bad as we could be, but sin has infected every part of us from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. That means every day in this world, temporally, you are battling sin. Death for the believer is a graduation away from sin being a battle. That's a glorious thought. Death from sin brought into the presence of the Lord, as Paul wrote there in 2 Corinthians 5. The soul that's been saved will be separated from the sin which so easily was besetting to it. The body is also going to be free from corruption. 
It will not die again in that same sense. It is by this death and it is by this picture of death that we are bound to bring glory and grace to the living God. We are to live for him. We are to show the glory of what he's done for us. Christ destroyed death. When he was talking about the destruction of death, he wasn't just talking about destroying the actual temporal ending of death. He was talking about that which brings death, sin. Sin crushed. So there is coming a day when sin will no longer be a problem. But it's still a problem for each one of you, including myself today. It's a ever minute by minute, second by second problem. But yet we have the hope that one day that sin will be completely removed from us. What Satan brought into the world through Adam, sin and death, Christ through his sacrifice, not only crushed Satan's head, but he defeated sin and defeated death as well. So it is in fact God, John Owen puts it this way, it is God who brings death to death. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is a deep thought. John Owen is an extremely, was an extremely deep writer. And you have to, you, you've got to have a whole pot of coffee but when you start reading John Owen. Because it's a full day. But there are truths throughout what he says. And Christ brings about death to death. Now we do know that there is an everlasting death. For the unbeliever, just like we will be separated from sin for all of eternity, those who are in Christ, the death to those who are not in Christ, it is the worst death possible. Now, some would say that the worst thing to deal with is the death of the body. For the unbeliever, the worst thing is spiritual death. Death to the body will be nothing compared to the spiritual eternity that they will have to spend with sin not removed, but sin ever present. Man temporally dies but even though he dies, his, his sin still lives. He's not going to escape it. That's why the doctrines, the false doctrines of annihilation have tried to soothe the conscience of people over the years because what they think with that is, is, well, it's not going to matter because even if I temporally die and I die a horrific death, it'll just be over in a few seconds or whatever, and I won't ever, that's not the way it works. See, the reality is, is spiritual death, think about the word death, is not meaning that you're, there's an end to you. The soul will live on forever. Every person who has lived, is living, will live, is either going to spend it in the presence of the Lord or separated from God, in a sense, still in their sin. That's why it's so serious and it's so imperative that we hold true to the doctrines which we so beloved, which are the doctrines of the gospel. It should be unbearable for us to consider and think about anybody spending eternity separated from God, still dead in sin. But that's, that's the death for the unbeliever. That is the worst death that is to come. 
Now again, we're all apprehensive about that. It's the most unlike subject to talk about. I realize that. Every pastor knows the least popular subject is going to be death. Because none of us want to think about it. But understand here what Paul is talking about, that without the death of Jesus Christ, there is no death to sin. By Jesus Christ's death, Paul is talking about here, the satisfaction, the required payment was made to satisfy the justice of God. God has never, nor will ever, overlook sin. He doesn't turn his eye away from it and pretend like it didn't happen. As a matter of fact, the only satisfaction for his righteousness or for his justice is the righteousness of Christ that is accomplished through his shed blood, through his death. So when Paul is talking about being baptized into his death, Paul is talking about very important doctrines here. And just as we are one in Christ, the believer as a member of the body of Christ, is one with Christ as truly as we were one with Adam. Oftentimes we talk about the doctrine of original sin and we talk about how the the sin of Adam uh, makes us all sinners. Well, just as true as that is, is the reality that we are just as one with Christ as we were one with Adam. Now, for some reason, people have a harder time accepting the latter one of being right with or right with Christ or one with Christ. But yet that's the glorious truth Paul's talking about here. You know, we can we can rightfully so continue to remind one another about the reality of original sin. And it's an important doctrine to understand. But it's just as important to understand that if you have been baptized into Jesus Christ and baptized into his death, that you are also just as one with Christ as you were one with Adam. That's a source of rejoicing. That's what Paul says. And he says, know ye not these things. Christ's righteousness is as truly ours as Adam's sin was ours. All of Adam's genealogy, all of Adam's family tree are sinners. That means every single person who's ever lived, is living, and will live is a sinner. Every new baby born today is born a sinner. So we understand that this is a true union that we have with Christ. We are truly one with him. Christ's obedience is looked at as if we had obeyed. See, Jesus Christ didn't come to do away with the law. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. And by his fulfillment of the law, it is as if we obeyed the law. Which we know is impossible. So it's only by his obedience, again, his obedience, that we are also declared to be obedient. And again, even in a second step of this, in his death, it is as if we have died also. When it is said that believers have died with Christ, 
This is the same type of figure as saying that we died in Adam. If we were dead in Adam and we were just as dead as Adam was, then we are just as alive in Christ as Christ is. We can't miss these truths. You and I who were baptized into Jesus Christ are actually alive unto Jesus Christ. Actually living. And you say, well, preacher, that's pretty profound. I, I look around and everybody, for the most part, looks alive. They all look like they're breathing. They all, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual, eternal life. It's that same mystery how we can be seated in these places, but also seated in heavenly places that Paul talked about. How can we be in two places at one time? And yet, that's what Paul writes. Now, we have to say this because there's always, when you see verses like this, there's always a temptation to read something into it that's not there. The figure or the rite or the ordinance of baptism became mistaken for an actual saving ordinance. So accordingly, even some of the earlier church fathers, and not all the early church fathers, I mean, sometimes we get this idea that, look, I'm just a follower of all the early church fathers. Well, all the early church fathers were not right about everything. There were some who had mistakenly begun to take verses like this and said, wait a minute, he's talking about baptism. He's talking about, I know what baptism is. That's when we take somebody and we put them in the water and when they come up out of the water. And some mistakenly began to say, well, it's actually the baptismal waters that save. Now, of course, that's not our position here because that's not biblical. But yet, some of the earlier fathers and some of those who were recognized as being the early church fathers, if you want to use it that way, became fixated on the baptized person as being truly born again in the water. Paul was just using this in a symbolic way. Yes, we are in fact baptized into Christ the moment we're converted. There is a baptism into Christ, but the baptism is being used here as a symbol they began to suppose that the non-believer went into the water, still had all of his sins upon him or her, and came out of the water without them. If you listen carefully, and I hope you do listen carefully, you can hear this doctrine is still permeating and is still being propagated in a lot of places that might surprise you. Even to make the mistake in the ordinance of baptism, when we conduct a baptism here, if I was to say any way, shape, or form that bringing them up out of, their out of the water, they left their sins in the baptistry tank, I will, have just, I will have just perpetrated to you heresy. It is all symbolic. It is, it is not a saving ordinance. But yet there are those who have taken it that way. See, the carnal mind continues to struggle with the reality, did Jesus Christ really pay it all? Did Jesus Christ, it would make baptism a work. That I submitted to baptism, and because I submitted to baptism, I worked out my own salvation. Paul is not talking about your, your baptism being found in those baptismal waters at all. Now, on the same token, man becomes impatient, 
continues to try to find a way to uh, wait upon God's method of converting sinners, which some of you, I, I realize that um, sometimes we struggle with this. We wonder about our loved ones. We wonder about people we've prayed for for years. And uh, we begin to conjure up in our minds, uh, what kind of effectual way can I get this loved one converted? And oftentimes, baptism has been the fallback, the default mode. I see emphasis, and you can do this. You can actually go on, on sites and, and look, and you can see where emphasis is placed. There are some churches, even in our communities, that the emphasis of their church is baptism. Now, that's not just by accident. The baptism is put to the forefront because they believe it's a saving ordinance. And they might say something like, we baptized 300 people today. They're not all saying we baptize 300 people who are actually converted, who have gone through Christ. They're saying these are people who have been added to the body because the baptismal water saved them today. Again, I don't mean any offense by this, because if you have relatives or loved ones, and it's not true across the board, but even the modern Christian church today is teaching salvation by baptism. Someone may say, I go, to, I go to such and such Christian church. That doesn't mean that they believe the same way that you believe. Again, I'm not painting it with one brush. I'm just telling you, there are a lot of Christian churches, that's what they believe. So they talk about the waters being stirred every week. But the testimony of those people is, I went into the water and I came up saved. I came up out of the water cleansed from my sin. I came up from the water a new man. If you were truly converted by Jesus Christ, you were cleansed from your sin and a new creature before you ever went into that water. The baptismal waters did not save you. It didn't even, it did not remove a single spot from you. Christ's blood did that. So Paul wants us to be sure we understand that these, this ordinance of baptism. It is also the exact same concept or idea is where the origin of where transubstantiation came from. The same concept where in tra transubstantiation, the bread and the wine or the juice in the Lord's Supper are supposed to be, we understand, they are emblems, they are figures, they are pictures of the body and blood of Christ, but they have actually turned it into the real body, the real blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they believe that. I'm not saying that bringing a false accusation. They actually believe that it's changed into his blood, and into his body, and that every time you take of it, there is a saving grace being imparted to you. The same concept that happened with baptism has happened with that. The two ordinances that Jesus Christ left for us are the two most abused. Yet they were to be symbolism, they were to be pictures of a reminder of what's already taken place. They were never at any point in time were they ever meant to be saving ordinances. 
So Paul is not implying that these individuals don't know this because he says, know ye not as many or so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. Now this phrase, so many of us, is an interesting phrase. It's, it's not implying that any of those to whom Paul is writing were not baptized into Christ. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. He's applying this to the whole of them as well to himself. It amounts to him saying, we who are baptized into Christ, these things are known, is what he means by that. He's not interjecting here some sense of doubt or some sense of uh, there might be an issue here. No, he's, he's reminding them that if this is so, then these things that you do know. Now next week, when we continue into verse 4, I want you just to look at this verse with me. He says, therefore, we are buried with him by baptism. Baptize, baptism into what? into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead of the glory by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now again, not only are we going to walk in newness of life temporally, we want to live for him, we want to live dead to sin, we actually are walking in true newness of life, truly dead to sin. Not just hypothetically, but dead to it. Again, like I mentioned the last two weeks, not sinless. But actually being dead to sin, sin for the believer has no damning power over you any longer. And I mentioned to you this, even when, when uh, Satan likes to bring up or one of his demons or even our old flesh likes to remind us of a sin we committed 15 years ago. That sin if you are in Christ Jesus, is already paid for. People tell me often, I just can't forgive myself. It's not about you forgiving yourself. If you're in Christ Jesus, that sin's already been forgiven. So when the devil comes up and whispers in your ear, or your old man rises up in you and says, you know what, you really, you really are just a rotten sinner. Instead of trying to feel sorry for yourself, admit it and say, yes, I am. You're right. I am a sinner. I am still battling sin every single day, but I am not going to die in condemnation for that sin because it is under the blood of Jesus Christ. So many people just continue to believe the lies about their own sin. Being dead to sin means your sin can no longer condemn you. Now, that goes back to Paul's question. Knowing that truth... Do you continue in sin by knowing that? God forbid. God forbid that you would know this truth and then say God's grace is a license to sin. No, it's actually would make us more desirable of walking or more desired to walk in the newness of life, which we'll talk about next week. I love the way Spurgeon puts this. He says, this is the very hinge now, when he uses the word religion, he's using this as a whole. He's not talking about just religion in general, but he said this is the very hinge of our religion. His death, speaking of Christ, not into his example merely, nor primarily into his life, but into his death. It is in this we have believed, with a dying Savior we are linked, and our baptism sets this forth. We were baptized into his death, 
the reigning power of sin falls dead. Remember I told you last week to put in the back of your mind the word reign and reigning? The reigning power of sin as your king, as your master, falls dead the moment a man is converted. And notice Spurgeon didn't stop there. But the struggling power of sin does not die until the man dies. There's where you are. Your sin cannot condemn you eternally, spiritually. But your sin is going to be a battlefield until your earthly tabernacle dies. But you don't have to live under its power. You don't have to live under the rule of the old man. You have a new nature living within you. See, we are not found in a state of perfection right now. When we're baptized into Jesus Christ, when we're converted, we're not in a state of what's called perfection. Why? Because sin is still there. But having been baptized into his death, we then strive to obtain. We press toward the mark, Paul would often say. The blessings of what it means to be dead in Christ and dead to our sin. And we're pressing forward to reach the ultimate goal. What is the ultimate goal? People often say the ultimate goal is heaven. No, the ultimate goal is to have the realization that you are free from sin. See, that's why the gospel can get so perverted and corrupt. When you begin the gospel presentation by saying, do you want to go to heaven? That's not the question. That's not the question. That's not even a good evangelistic start. Because we have to deal with the reality of what every person in Adam is dealing with. Sin. The gospel has to start with we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. The person who's truly been converted actually wants sin to die in them. They actually want sin gone. They can't stand its presence. They don't want it there anymore. They don't love it. They don't like it. They want it gone. And when it, when it rears its ugly head, we want it gone. That's what Paul is talking about, this idea of striving or pressing towards this goal. So when we are baptized into Christ, we do know that there is an eternity with Christ awaiting us. And there is heaven. We know there's glory and we don't fully possess all that we will possess, but we are now taking steps to walk in righteousness and walk in holiness. And as we'll look at next week, walking in newness of life. It is necessary that we be baptized into Jesus Christ in his death. Again, Paul says, know ye not these things. Know ye not these things to be true. That if you are in fact in Jesus Christ, you have first and foremost been baptized into his death. Again, just like Psalm 23 ought to be a source of comfort for you today as we read, so should Romans 6.3. For the believer, these are comforting words that we just read and studied today. Words that are, that are founded upon the doctrinal truth of God's word. Not upon my philosophy, not upon the philosophy of a man, but upon what Jesus Christ has declared. And I hope we'll take it for what it's intended to be this morning. Let's pray together.